0: this morning. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 10 together, Uh, but in our 11 years of marriage, uh, Carrie and I did a fair bit of moving around in our first few years. Uh, In the first four or five years, we kind of joked that every summer we sort of got the itch that it was time to move. We moved into an apartment um, and then we moved into a a home that we bought when I was in seminary at, at the seminary campus and then uh, we moved up here to McDowell County in a rental home. Then we moved into a home we bought up here. And then we moved out to Old Fort. We've had uh, a fair number of moves. Um, and we've stayed put here for a good little while at the house we're at. Um, but in all the places we've moved to, I can say with certainty that we have never stumbled across anything of any value that we wanted to keep that the person left in the place before. It's usually, oh man, we've got to gather up some old things and get rid of them. But that's not how it happened for a family in 2012 in uh, Ohio. Um, they bought, a, or they, rather they inherited a home and they began to go through it. And they found certain things they wanted to keep and things they wanted to get rid of. And as they were going through it, they went made their way to the attic. I don't know if you start at the attic or that was the last place. But they made their way to the attic. And when they did, they found some really old and really rare baseball cards that were just wrapped in twine and sort of just left sitting there as if nobody really knew what they were and uh, the treasure that they had. One of the cards was that of baseball great Honus Wagner. who And this is an original card. His card, another original card of Honus Wagner, sold in 2007 in Arizona for $2.8 million for one little piece of cardboard with a, a person's picture on it. One auction director said they found cardboard Gold. And if you think about that, that cardboard gold, that's an oxymoron. I mean, what do we do? We we stomp on cardboard and we get rid of it. We put it in big bins and they hauled it all away for us uh, because we don't want to keep it around. But they found cardboard gold. Now let's say for a moment that you had $2.8 million that you wanted to spend on a baseball card and you're all thinking that's crazy. I agree with you. But let's say you were going to do that and you drove all the way to Ohio and you took a suitcase of cash and you laid it on the table, or several suitcases, and you opened them up and you said, here's $2.8 million. hand me the card. You make the exchange, you drive all the way back here, you get home, you call up a friend who's an expert at baseball cards, and they begin to inspect the card for you. And as they're looking it over, they look at you with sort of a downcast look on their face and they say, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you've been ripped off. Your card is a fake If that happened to you, what are the emotions that are going to be bubbling up inside of you as you race for the keys and jump in the car and head all the way back to Ohio in record time outrunning the law enforcement officers behind you? You're going to be angry because everything you had, you put it into securing this card and you just got ripped off. Well, in John chapter 10 verses 7 through 10, Jesus makes another bold statement about himself where he exposes the facade of the Pharisees' legalistic religion. He rips back the cover. Do you remember in the, the movie The Wizard of Oz, the old one? And there's that scene where the, the guy's behind the curtain, and you don't, you don't know it, you haven't seen him yet, and somebody pulls back the curtain, and they see him sort of you know, moving the levers and hitting the buttons to make everything happen. Well, that's essentially what Jesus does with the Pharisees in John chapter 10. He pulls back the curtain and he exposes the ugly underbelly of their legalistic, pharisaic uh, approach to an external religion. And he tells people, if you're following these guys, if you're going their direction, if you're obeying their teachings and what they say about how you are acceptable to God, then you are getting ripped off. How much more valuable is your soul than 2.8 million dollars? you can spend 2.8 million i don't know how that's a lot but you can spend that money and it's going to come to an end we all have eternal souls that are so much more valuable than any amount of money and they're going to spend an eternity somewhere and so jesus shows up on the scene and when he shows up one of his goals is to expose this legalistic external type of religion that says if you do this and this and this and this you will then at that point become acceptable to God. He basically says there's no other way you can come to God except through me. I am the door. And so, this third statement that Jesus makes is a statement of contrast of real versus fake, of true versus false. That's why I set up this morning the sermon with that picture of the baseball card. And it's, a, it's an image, a statement that is built around a well-known picture of shepherds and sheep in that culture. And it teaches us a lot about Christ and His mission and His ministry here on earth. So we need to understand what Jesus meant when He told us that He is the door. Now, I would uh, say that most everyone in here, chances are you um, did not grow up around a lot of sheep. Maybe some of you, um, probably people 40 or 50 and down, Uh, Not at all, perhaps. We're kind of getting away from uh, that type of agrarian, agricultural type culture. But to feel the weight of the metaphor that Jesus uses here when he says, I am the door, we need to take a brief journey back for a few moments into a culture that none of us have ever lived in. And I would say this just as an aside note. When you study the Bible, don't ask this question, what does this mean to me? Don't ask that first. You can ask that at the end of your Bible study after you've interpreted it and you've looked at it and you see what it means to the ones it was originally written to. Because all of the Scripture was originally dealing with real issues in that time period and all of the issues in there hold timeless principles for us to govern our lives by today. So what did it mean to them? Now we cross this very long bridge between then and now. Okay, how does that apply to now? That's how you need to do... Bible study as you look at God's Word. So let's go back to this ancient culture as Chuck Swindoll describes this scene wonderfully. Listen to this. Swindoll says, of all the domesticated animals, sheep are the most helpless. Makes you feel really good about being described as a sheep, right? They're the most helpless. They spend their entire day grazing, wandering from place to place, never looking up. As a result, they can easily become lost because they have no homing instinct like other animals. So they can't all of a sudden get their bearings and find their way back to where they're supposed to be. They're totally incapable of doing that. By nature, sheep are followers. So if the lead sheep just steps right off the cliff here, then the sheep right behind that one are going to do the very same thing. Sheep are totally dependent upon the shepherd who gives them care with compassion. Shepherds were the providers, the guides, protectors, and the constant companions of sheep. Sheep and shepherds had such a close bond in that day that even to this day, a Middle Eastern shepherd can walk up to a sheep pen where there's numerous herds that are mingled. He can call out to the sheep. The sheep recognize His voice. That's why we see that in John 10. They hear His voice. They know only His sound. And they won't follow any other voice of a stranger, Jesus tells us. And this is true. And they will follow the voice of their shepherd. And He calls them and He makes some noise. And they follow Him out. And all of a sudden, the, the, the flock begins to show up. And they begin to sort of unmingle, if you will. They can divide their flocks and they can have them lay down during the night simply by doing this. Shepherds and their flocks are inseparable. The shepherd would lead the sheep to safe places to graze and then make them lie down. Remember Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me into the green pastures, it says. The shepherd would lead them to do this and then make them lie down for several hours in a shady place. Then as night fell, the shepherd would lead the sheep to the protection of a sheep fold. One kind of sheep pen was in the countryside. You're going to see a picture behind me on the screen. You'll sort of see, I don't know if the light, the sunlight's kind of uh, washing it out a little bit, but you'll see uh, there it's basically uh, a rough circle of rocks piled into a wall. So they just piled up the rocks high enough where the sheep are not going to get out. And there's a small open space, sort of where this grass would be, and it's not much narrower than a person or a sheep could walk through through it the shepherd would drive the sheep at nightfall so they would go into this place out in the countryside if they were if it was good weather they would drive the sheep through at nightfall and since there was no gate to close it there was only an opening listen to this the shepherd would keep the sheep in and the wild animals out by laying across the opening when when i ran across that description the entire metaphor of jesus being the door Completely opened up, to to borrow the pun. It completely opened up. There was no door. Any wild animal could come in during the night if the shepherd was derelict in his duties. But he would literally lay down his life to keep the sheep in and to keep the wild animals out. He would sleep there, in this case, literally becoming the door for the sheep. And so this is the picture Jesus had in mind when he says, truly, truly. He says, basically, look, pay attention. I'm telling you the truth. I am the door. And he's picturing the sheep that belong to his flock that he keeps in there safely because he lays down his life. So three things we learned quickly this morning about Christ when he calls himself the door. Number one, you're going to see a pattern here. Number one, Jesus is the only entrance into the kingdom of God. Again, another exclusive claim. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am, ego Amy. same Greek construct there, where he's referencing the I am of the Old Testament. I am the door. When I was growing up, uh, I used to love to go watch um, Carolina basketball games. I'm from Durham, and if you live in Durham, oh, don't make that face, Linda. If you live in Durham, I saw that, I saw that. I saw that. I like state. I'm okay with state. But if you live in Durham, you love Duke or you hate Duke. And I was on that other side of hating Duke, if I can use that terminology uh, in the pulpit uh, just for fun. But when we would go to the, the greatest place in the world to watch a basketball game, the Dean Dome, amen, Ron and Pam, amen, when we would go there, Any number of places, you could get into this place. You could walk up to the place, and they had turnstiles all the way around. You hand them their ticket, and they would admit you into any number of entrances. But what Jesus is saying is, if you want in, there's only one door that you're coming through, and it's me. I'm it. This is an exclusive claim. And if you look at all the claims, Jesus sets himself up this way. He says, When he says he's the bread of life, He's saying, I am the only source of spiritual sustenance. You're not going to find spiritually in anything else what you're going to find in me. Then he says, I'm the only source of true spiritual light. When he says, I'm the light of the world. So here he says, I'm the only entrance into the kingdom. But, there's a major distinction between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders in verse 7 and 8. Go back to verse 1 with me. I know this is part of the context. Go back to verse 1. And here's what he says, anyone who tries to get into the sheep pen any other way than the door is a what? A thief and a robber. A while back, maybe two months back, my car got broke into in the middle of the night. The robbers were not supposed to be in my yard and they were not supposed to be in my car. So when did they choose to do this dirty deed? In the dark. Under the cover of darkness. If they were supposed to be there, they're not going to try to sneak in. They're going to come up to my door and, can we have your golf clubs? They're just going to walk right up if they're supposed to be there. That's what my children do. My children are a part of my family. They'll come up most of the time and say, can we use your fill in the blank? Now, sometimes it doesn't work like that. And I find my tools all over the yard. Okay? But these robbers were not supposed to be there. If you belong, you come right up to the door. But what if you don't like the door? What if you're one of the Pharisees that is promoting this external religious stuff basically so you can look really good and it's all about you. It's really not about God. And Jesus comes and he says, it has nothing to do with him. I'm the door." The door just completely upset everything you're trying to do. Jesus turns the religious system on its ear. He completely dismantles it with these statements and then he backs it up. What if you don't like the door? Jesus says, I'm the door. Well, what do you do? If you don't like the door, you've got to find another way in. And that's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were teaching to those who were still under the Jewish system of law. If you perfectly follow A, B, C, D, and all the way down into AA, Double B, double C, double D, double E, double F, double, all the way down. You follow all those things and now you become acceptable to God. That is works-based righteousness. That is an effort to climb a mountain to get to God that you cannot climb on your own. So praise God what did Jesus do. He came down from that mountain to where we are and he dwelt among us. John chapter 1 verse 14 says in the flesh and he bore our sins in his body on the tree and became a curse so that you don't have to be cursed. Amen. Jesus blows us out of the water. He says, you can't get into the kingdom by any other way but coming through me. You repent of your sin and you trust in Christ for forgiveness. Second, Jesus offers himself to anyone who would enter through him. To anyone. Look at verse 9. The language is so clear. I am the door if anyone enters by me. Is there a very narrow way to enter? Yes. He doesn't say if anyone enters through whatever door makes them happy. Hello, modern culture. Hello, society that we live in. He doesn't say if anyone's just happy, then you just come on in. If anyone chooses this because it suits their lifestyle, you just come on in. If anyone, he says if anyone, the offer is broad, but the gate is narrow. There's only one way to get in to this kingdom, and he says it is through him. Listen to John 3.16. For God so loved what? The world, the cosmos, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever. You know what's awesome about that? You've never met anyone who was not a whosoever. I know that's like really theologically astute, right? But you've never met anyone who doesn't belong in the whosoever category. Everyone, the offer, is is completely given. I like to think of it like this. If someone came to you and said, I've bought you a brand new car. It's paid for. The keys are down at the dealership. And all you have to do is just receive it. It's yours. That's what Jesus has done for us. With salvation, with eternal life, with abundant life here and now. Listen, abundant life doesn't just start, oh, when I die. You talk to somebody who's walked out of the dark and they're living in the light and the joy and the freedom and the peace and the security and the strength and the I could go on fills them, then they know. Abundant life is here and now. Listen to some of the stories in this room. You've shared these with each other. Some of you have shared this, them on this, this platform. Abundant life begins when you say yes to Jesus. And he says, come on into that sheepfold and belong to me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Thank you, my throat was dry. He's a new creation. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Well, what's the Jew and Greek got to do with it? Well, in Paul's day, you were a Jew or you were a non-Jew. Now, my, my youth pastor growing up, he grew up in a Jewish family. He, he was a Jew like her, by heritage, but he converted to Christianity. In the Jewish way of thinking, you're either Jewish and the covenants and all those things belong to your people group, or you're not. You're a Gentile, okay? So when Paul says to the Jew first and to the Greek, what he's saying is the offer is open to both as long as you come in through that one door. The Jews don't have a door And the Greeks don't have a door. There is one door that we all enter into. It is so sad to me, and I'm not going to go into this at length. I understand the need for denominations to a point, because there are some different theological beliefs. But I've said this before. When we enter through that one door, there's no distinctions in the kingdom. You're not going to go in through that one door, which is Christ, His cross, His blood, the empty tomb, you're not going to go in through that door and get in there and start looking around like you're at the airport. Where's my gate? Where's the Southern Baptists? Where's the so-and-so? Where's the Pentecostals? Where's the... It doesn't matter at that point. Because there's only one door that you can come in through. And when you go through that door, Jesus Christ, you enter into His kingdom for all time, for all eternity. Someone says, but, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know what I did yesterday. He would never let me in. And there are people who say that. You don't know what I've done. He'd never let me in. Well, I know this. He let a guy named Saul in, later called him Paul. He was hunting down Christians, he was locking them up, he was having them killed. And what did the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, do? Hunted him down, knocked him off that horse, and you know what? Saul said, Lord, Lord, who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm the one you are persecuting. Saul was a whosoever. I don't think what you've done can compare to the badness or the goodness of what Saul did as a legalistic Pharisee. I mean, he ran the gamut. And he was a whosoever. And then what did he do? God used him. God used him to write half the New Testament and become the greatest missionary statesman that we've ever known. The offer is open to anyone. Third, only Jesus can give us what we need. Look again at verse 9. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, listen to this. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Three incredible promises that we receive when we turn to Jesus Christ. First is this. He will be, what does the language say? He will be saved. Now this is not popular language in today's culture. It's kind of fallen by the wayside, but I don't know what else to call it. What do you call it when a person is drowning? I used this example last week. When a person is drowning, they're going to the bottom. Their air is about to expire. Life is about to be over. Someone dives in and saves them and pulls them out. They were saved. What did Jesus do when the disciples said to him, we're drowning. Aren't you going to do anything about this storm and this boat? And we're going down. And what did Jesus do? He saved them. If anything, this language ought to, please listen, please. This language ought to motivate us. That if people really are lost and drowning and as desperate as the Bible says, then they need saving. They need rescue. Second, they will go in and out freely. What does this mean? The shepherd leads the sheep in when they need protection and he leads them out when it's time to feed. The picture here is someone that has access to God's blessings. When you belong to the fold, the shepherd knows you. You know the shepherd. You have his providential watch care. You have his protection. Go look at Psalm 91. I love Psalm 91. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but the whole thing is about the blessing of when you live under the protection of this shepherd, of Almighty God. You know one of the scariest things is about being lost? Lost. When you're lost, You don't have Christ. You don't live under the blessings of the protection of Psalm 91. You're on your own. You are lost and out there on your own. So when the wolves come, there's no shepherd laying there to keep the wolves out. When the darkness falls and is scary and you can't see the enemy around you, there's no shepherd to beat them back and protect you and bring you back when you fall. When the winds blow and it disorients you a little bit in life, you ever been disoriented before in your life because of something? If you don't have Christ, you don't have a shepherd. Third, that person will find pasture. In other words, Jesus will feed and nourish his sheep because he loves them and he cares for them deeply. The false teachers in this situation, the the legalistic Jewish leaders, didn't care about the people. You know what they wanted? You know what they hungered for? You know what they lusted after? Power. Pride. Popularity. Privilege. Prestige. They only cared about getting rich off of their religious propaganda. They were, watch me, Fleecing the sheep. They were takers. But Jesus is the ultimate giver. He gave his life to satisfy the deepest need of our souls and fix our broken relationship with the Father. Listen to Paul in Romans 8.32. If God has given us his very best, why then would he not take care of all the lesser things? Paul brilliantly uses an uh, an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he's taking care of your biggest, deepest, greatest, soul-level need, why would he not take care of those little things? Matthew chapter 6, what did Jesus say? Look around at the birds. Look around at the, the flowers of the field. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. How much more valuable are you? So now Jesus does the exact opposite of Paul. He uses the argument from the lesser to the greater. Both of them point to the fact that your Father is watching over you. And so this morning, I want to close with three questions for you to consider. When we look at this metaphor of Jesus being the door, remember, everything is built off of false doors, real door. False shepherds, real shepherd. Everything is false and true, okay? Question number one. This whole metaphor is built off of false and true. Jesus is the true door. And He is the only door into the kingdom. Any other way that we attempt to be acceptable to God, any other thing we do is a false door. It is a false Savior. And it is a false hope. But sadly, you know what so many people do? They spend their entire lives opening door after door after door after door after door and they're hoping behind that next door they're going to find what they need to fill up what is empty in here so here's my first question what false saviors have you put your hope in or what false saviors are you putting your hope in, in other words to carry the door metaphor out, what doors have you opened looking for what's going to fill you up, Jesus says I'm the only way in, what false saviors, number two In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind guy. Takes mud, puts it on his eyes. You know the story, perhaps. That's the situation that led right up to John chapter 10. They're right there together. They happen right simultaneously. Jesus led the blind man out of the web of Judaism because he led him into following Christ. Because we're caught in bondage to sin, here's what happens when a person gets saved. You were led out and you were led in simultaneously. In my notes, you know what I have right here? Here's what it says. It says there's a leading out before the coming in. That's not even accurate. I realized that last night. That's legalistic, phariseistic, rule-based relationship that you have to be led out and then you can come in. I mean, you don't get in the shower... Or you don't get clean and then get in the shower, do you? You get in the shower dirty, and that shower does the work, and it washes you off. And when you come in through that door, there's something where Jesus takes all of those things off of you that have burdened you. And then you come in. The coming in and the going out happen simultaneously at the same time. So let me ask you this question. What do you need to be led out of today? Really, let's not just be ready to go. What do you need to be led out of today? Is it pride? Is it some addiction that, yeah, you belong to the shepherd, but man, you need the shepherd to lead you out of that? Or maybe you don't belong to the shepherd and you need to be brought in, and that coming in and that going out happens together. Is it people approval? Is it fear or anxiety that you need that shepherd to lead you out of? Is it gossip? Is it anger? Is it bitterness towards someone else? And man, you want so desperately to be freed. You can't free yourself from that. The self-efforts are only going to keep you trapped in that cycle. When you come to Christ, He does the work on us and He frees us. He leads us in and He leads us out. Let me flip the question around. We, we, we're real quick to like take prayer requests. Pray for this, pray for this, pray for this. But then when it comes time to offer a praise, what happens? I don't know what I have to praise God for today. What has God led you out of that you need to praise Him for today? What has He led you through? How has He proved Himself to be the shepherd? How has He walked you through some situation? How has He led you out of some sin? How has He brought you out of some destructive relationship? How has He brought you out of destructive patterns of thinking that were taking you further away from God? And you can praise Him today. And somebody praise the Lord for that, right? Man, I've got things in my past that God's led me out of. And praise God. Give thanks and glory to Him forever because He's the only one that can lead you out of what you are stuck in. And the devil wants you to think two things. You can do it on your own. That's just works-based righteousness. That's just human effort. We collaborate with the Spirit of God, yes. But we have to lean into Christ first. But you know what the second thing is? The devil wants you to despair. And the devil wants you to hear, you're not going to get out of here. You can't do this. You're going to stay stuck. Why bother trying? Quit going to church. Don't answer that text of that Christian brother and sister that reached out to you. You know why? Because roaring hungry lions love to hunt down weak, sick, straying animals. 1 Peter chapter 5. Third question. What's the difference between being rooted in the gospel and going through the religious motions? Please answer this. What is the difference between everything being rooted in the gospel and just going through the religious motions? Because only one of them is going to give you the abundant life. Only one of them is going to lead you into the real, true pasture. Are you really rooted in the gospel? Or, when someone asks you about your relationship with Christ, do you start listing off your religious activities? Where you were baptized? How many times you've served on the deacon board? your places of church service, your spiritual accomplishments. If your first go-to when you answer about your relationship with Christ is what you've done, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I am saying you're getting the cart before the horse. The cart never pulls the horse. The horse pulls the cart. And Jesus pulls us along and we need to give Him the credit and glory He deserves. So don't be fooled by externals. Don't be fooled by religious facades. Don't confuse religious activity with a real vital relationship with Jesus. Please, church, please. Root your mind, root your heart, root your activities, root your family relationships, root your job, root your ministry, root everything in the gospel of Christ and teach people around you to do the same. Because there's only one door. There's only one way in.